Uh, the third phrase in Psalm 23 that we're going to look at together, Psalm 23, the, the Lord's My Shepherd Psalm, the most well-known psalm, the most often quoted psalm in the world, Psalm 23, verse 3a, He restores my soul. Chippy the budgie never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched on a little platform in his cage, the next he was sucked in, washed up and blown out. The problem began when Chippy's owner, short of time, decided to use the vacuum cleaner to clean out his cage. Just as she'd taken the end of the attachment off the vacuum cleaner and shoved it in the cage, the phone rang. She turned, answered the phone, only to hear... <coughs> turned round with great horror, dropped the phone, went rushing to the hoover, the vacuum cleaner, opened it up, opened up the bag, and there was Chippy, <coughs> lying there, covered in the dust and grime that she'd hoovered up from her house over the past few weeks. He was alive but covered in dirt. She picked him up, rushed to the bathroom, turned on the tap, held him under the running water to get all this grime off him. Before she knew it, Chippy was shivering in the water like this. She realised that he was about to die of hypothermia and did what only every bird lover would do. She got out a hairdryer and began to dry the bird. Placed him eventually back into the cage. A few days later, someone asked, How's Chippy? Chippy's owner said, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. <laughs> he just sits and stares. Some of us have lost our sing. Things have happened in our lives that have taken us by surprise. We've been sucked in, blown out, washed up. And we all know what it is to sit and stare. You don't have to live very long to realize that in this life, you get hurt, you get discouraged, you get disappointments, you fail. We carry the wounds, the scars, the pain that these things have caused. Our Digging Deeper series at the moment is looking at all of this in much more detail. And when I introduced the first evening, I talked about trees. It was just after we had the storms at the beginning of the year. And we were walking around Christchurch Park. In fact, the park over the road from where we live also had huge trees that had been uprooted in the storm. And it gives you a, a view of a tree that you don't often get. You could see the roots in all their glory, all their former glory. You could see how uh, massive the roots are. You could imagine how deep and how far they would have spread underground to support the tree but now they were laying on their side, all exposed. And it was a reminder to me that the roots that are so often not on display very literally feed the branches and the life of the tree that is on display. If the roots are good, the tree will be healthy. But what if the roots are bad? The tree will be bad too. And so in our lives, our roots are not on display, but they are many and well-spread. And thinking about it this way, if some of our roots that are many and well spread are bad, then no surprise that some of the branches in our lives don't turn out too great for us. And in addition to these roots, as these trees lay on the ground in Christchurch Park, you could see the rings of the tree in the trunk. 
And, and like any uh, noble father, I got hold of Joel to show him the rings. You know, you can tell how old the tree is by counting the rings. He just wanted to play football, but I made him listen to the end of my sentence all the same. But had I been a tree surgeon, I would have been able to tell him a whole lot more about that tree because by looking at the rings of the tree, a tree surgeon, an expert in trees, could tell so much about that tree's history. Here is a ring where there was a horrible drought. Here is a ring where the tree was struck by lightning. Here are some normal years of growth. Here was a time of savage blight and disease or when there was a forest fire because there, lying embedded deep within that tree, are the memories the record of its growth and development, its good years and its bad. And equally lying in the bed of our heart are the rings of our journey, the good years and the not-so-good years, the joy and the pain. And as David Siemens puts it, just minutes below the protective bark of our lives, just a moment below the concealing mask are the recorded rings of all our lives those painful things, those things that wounded us by the way others treated us, those things that have made us angry, the pain of things or people that we have lost, the things that have made us feel useless. It's all tangled up there in the roots of our lives. And that is, in essence, why we don't always, frankly, feel too good. You can imagine going to a tree that is struggling to produce fruit and digging it up and you see its roots are all diseased and sickly and weak. No wonder this tree is rotten. And when we look at what's tangled up in the roots of our lives, maybe it's no wonder from time to time we don't feel too great either. This morning I want to explore just three, well two really, and just leave you to think about the third. Three major roots that spread their disease and infection into our lives. Three toxic emotions that, if left, will poison our souls. Three things that, in different ways, probably grab each one of us. Grief and guilt and grudges. Three things that Jesus actually had a lot to say about. And as you share in your small group uh, along this, uh, uh, around this theme, you will, you will see many times Jesus talked about grief and guilt and grudges. There's much to learn. And David, who wrote the psalm, Psalm 23, about the Lord restoring his soul, knew all about grief and guilt and grudges. And we can learn much from his example. Firstly then, the shepherd restores my soul by relieving my grief. Every one of us knows what it is to suffer loss. We don't all know what it is to suffer the same loss. Some of us have faced tremendous loss. In comparison, some of us have faced relatively small loss. But we can all recognize that how we handle that emotion, the emotion of grief, can bring restoration to our lives or it can bring ruin to our lives. For some, their lives are shipwrecked in the storm of grief and have never found themselves able to sail again. So how we handle our grief, we know, is immensely important. We can't do this justice this morning. Christine Myers, a few weeks ago in Digging Deeper, talked about the grief process magnificently. It's not online, I'm afraid, but it is available on tape. Uh, see Margaret Smith if you'd like to listen to it. Brilliant. 
about the grief journey. Grief is terribly toxic, terribly toxic. And many of us can remember moments when we were told news of great grief and how it pierced us right in here. It goes right to the core of our being, as if someone had injected poison into our soul. The two frighteningly fearful words from a doctor or a surgeon, I'm sorry. Their voice trails off, there's nothing more to say. And in such moments, spring becomes winter and blue turns grey, birds go silent, and the chill of sorrow settles into our hearts. We know all too well, some of us, how cold it is to walk the shadow of death. And that's where we find David in 2 Samuel chapter 1. You may like to turn to it and have it open in front of you. It's page 304. 2 Samuel chapter 1, page 304. For David the news comes from a breathless Amalekite with torn clothing and hair full of dirt. What happened, David asked. Tell me, he said. The men fled from battle. Many of them fell and died. That's verse 4. And then the dreadful news. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. This is a massive body blow for David. Jonathan was a friend, a brother, closer than a brother, described as someone who was united with him, one in spirit. It was the friendship that all of us crave. Jonathan, who'd stood with David during his most difficult times, Jonathan, who'd saved David's life and sworn to protect his children, Jonathan, one in spirit, who loved David as himself. And then Saul too. True, Saul had given David a real hard time, but David had honoured Saul as God's anointed king. Here was a double tragedy. And like us, David has a choice. He can face the emotion of his grief, or he can flee from it. He can face it, or he can flee from it. He can engage with it, or seek to erase it. He can suppress it, or deny it. We may do this more than we care to admit. Facing it is so painful and raw. And so we're tempted to run and to hide from it. We may try working harder, taking more holidays, spoiling ourselves, staying busy, keeping distance, all in an attempt to keep that raw emotion under control. But if we push it down, it will rise again. If we lock it in, the toxic gas it produces will build and build and build until the pressure is too great. Our traditional culture of the stiff upper lip has heeded us and not helped us. It's locked within us emotion that needed to be expressed and on times created within some of us an internal pressure cooker of great personal force. If we're going the shepherd's way, if we're going the shepherd's way, we must give it tears. We must give it tears. Verse 11, David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. We must allow, we must encourage the flow of tears. Maybe you say, our culture has taught us not to cry, to which I would reply, not everything about our culture has been good for us, 
has it? And this has not been good for us. Men taught us boys not to cry. Real men don't cry. And we wonder why so many men in adulthood are so void of emotion, so out of touch with their feelings. Why? Because that's how we've told them to live. That's how we've trained them to be. Real men don't cry. There will be uh, many of us, tens upon tens of men, here in this church who have received that sentiment at one stage or other in their lives. Men don't cry. And I hear too often people recounting painful memories uh, and as they recount perhaps memories that have been, be, been pushed down for many years, they say to me, I can hear my mother or my father, my uncle, my aunt, my brother, some older authority figure, you mustn't cry. Don't cry. Grown-ups, don't cry. Be an older person than you are. Don't cry. And the lid on their grief and their pain got slammed shut. And it's just festered and poisoned and polluted ever since. Who can tell? But if they had cried, if they had been able to pour out their emotion and their grief, I doubt I would hear so many stories and feel so much pain years later when we meet together. Teach your children to cry. Teach your boys to cry, to feel, to empathize, to face and not flee. In years to come, their wives will love you for it. Believe me. Real men weep. Jesus wept. And there's this fantastic quote by F.B. Meyer. Jesus wept. Peter wept. The Ephesian converts wept on the neck of the apostle whose face they were never to see again. Christ stands by each mourner saying, Weep, my child. Weep, for I have wept. He goes on, tears relieve the burning brain as a shower in the electric clouds. Tears discharge the insupportable agony of the heart as an overflow lessens the pressure of the flood against the dam. Tears are the material out of which heaven weaves its brightest rainbow. Tears are the material out of which heaven weaves its brightest rainbow rainbow. David has much to teach us. We don't really relate to him, do we? I'm worn out from the groaning, he says. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. He gave it tears, but he also gave his grief time. Maybe that's why his son was able to write, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun, a time to weep and a time to mourn. David made time to mourn. If you still have that passage in front of you, you will see, 2 Samuel 1.17, that David taught the people a song of lament, that over a period of time he would lead the whole nation in a process of mourning and grieving. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, a time of weeping. But how long do we weep? How long do we remain in that place, letting it come, letting it out, letting it flow, making sure the toxins aren't building? As one writer put it, in these days of rush, it seems that we hurry 
our hurts. Not the same the world over. Egyptians wear black for six months. Orthodox Jews take 11 months of special prayers. We tend to focus on getting things back to normal, getting back to work, getting the show back on the road. I'll cope with it by getting things moving again. But how healthy in these cultures that are different to ours, who over a long period of time recognize that the grieving process is still going on, the freedom to wear something in your clothes or to behave in a certain way that says to the world, it might be 12 months ago and you all might have moved on, but hey, this is still big for me. I'm still working through the pain of this. I'm still weeping over what I've lost. A timely reminder that the cycle of grief is measured in months and years, never in days and weeks. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse in the message in a beautiful way. He says, sages invest themselves in hurt and grieving. Sages invest themselves in hurt and grieving. Lament is a foreign verb in our culture. And yet 70% or so of the Psalms are about weeping and lamenting and allowing the grief that's been poured into us to pour out towards God for his healing to come. It's much to learn about giving grief time and tears and finally about giving grief truth. David's lament included uh, these words, Saul and Jonathan... In life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. It literally means they died together. But it points us to a truth of greater value that becomes explicit for us in the New Testament. That death does not separate us in Christ, but provides that uniting to go on forever. And so Paul would write years to come, Do not be ignorant, and do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. When we kiss our children off to school in the morning, we might say to them, see you soon, and we believe it with all our hearts. We look forward to seeing them in just a few hours' time. We know we will see them again that day. So in death, as the flowers lay even fresh on the grave, we can say in our hearts, through all of the pain, see you soon. See you soon because, as the psalmist reminds us, this life that we cling to that seems so, uh, uh, so everything is absolutely nothing really. It is just a moment, uh, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, but a hand breath. Each man's life is a mere breath, a mere blowing in the wind. Our reunion is a splinter of an eternal moment away. And we know God understands. For we come to a God who buried his own son. It's never too late to give grief, maybe grief from long ago. Your tears and your time and the truth. Sometimes people start weeping over something that's happened fairly uh, recently in their lives. And they don't understand why they're weeping so much because it wasn't that big a deal. And then they discovered that actually they're weeping not for that thing but for something years back 
for the weeping for a parent, a sister, a brother, a child, a family member, a neighbor, a weeping for someone for whom we never wept. We got the show back on the road. It was the best way we understood how we could cope. But the lid had remained shut and it's been poisoning our souls. The shepherd will lead us safely through. We give it tears, we give it time, we give it truth. Let's move to another toxin, toxin of guilt. The shepherd restores my soul by removing my guilt. We have to move on quite a long way now in the life of David. The deaths of Saul and Jonathan are now uh, several decades ago. And David is at the height of his success as the king of Israel. But it's giving him altitude sickness. You'll see what I mean in a moment. David has never been higher. He's climbed too far for his own good. He's about 50 years of age and the success of his kingdom is at its peak. In two decades, he's distinguished himself as a statesman, a warrior, a musician and king. The country is prospering. His cabinet is strong. His boundary stretches some 60,000 miles. There are no defeats on the battlefield, no blemishes on his administration. The people love him. The soldiers serve him. And he's followed by the crowds. Here is a man who's got it all. But he's so high, the oxygen up there where he is must now be so thin he cannot hear and he cannot see properly. And he is about to make a catastrophic mistake. One night when the men are at war, he's on his balcony and he sees a woman bathing and he desires her. And he says to his servant, who is that woman? But he's so high up, the oxygen must be so thin, he cannot hear what the servant replies. Because the servant replies with many warnings. This, my lord, She is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. My Lord, not only he's saying she's married, but you know who she's married to? She's married to Uriah the Hittite. Can David hear what he's saying? The servant is saying as politely as he possibly can, David, for goodness sake, don't do it, but David can't hear. And he cannot see straight either. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He sees her beauty, her curvaceousness. He sees Bathsheba the conquest, but he cannot see what he should see, He cannot see a wife, a woman in God's image, someone to be respected and honoured. And so deaf and blind, he makes this colossal mistake. He seduces her, impregnates her, murders her husband, deceives his generals and soldiers, and then he marries her. It is a catastrophic fall from grace. But it looks like he's got away with it. No one, no one, knows. It's been the perfect cover-up. To the casual observer, all is still very well in the nation. David has a new wife. He has a new very happy life. The throne is intact. And hey, a new baby is on the way, bringing that kind of feel-good factor for the royal court and then the whole of the nation. Nine months pass, they decorate a nursery, they pick baby names from the book. David seems to have dodged the bullet. His secret seems safe. His secret goes completely and utterly undiscovered. But what was that like for David? What was David feeling in those 12 months? Was he happy with his new life, his new wife and son? No. David is honest enough to tell us what it was like. He says it was miserable. 
My paraphrase, it was as miserable as sin, is what he says. You see, on the inside, David's life is now falling apart. The guilt is searing his soul. This is what he writes about that period in his life. When I kept silent, when I keep this, kept this secret, this dreadful thing hidden from everybody, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Guilt was spewing its poison minute by minute into David's soul. Was he relaxed, taking life easy, sipping lemonade on the patio? No. Restless days, sleepless nights, weird story. He was a miserable husband. He was an irritable father. He was a poor leader. He was a composer who could no longer compose. He lived a lie and couldn't escape the truth. And guilt waged war in his soul. And for 12 months, that's how it went on. Maybe you're carrying guilt about something and you've carried it for even longer. Roger Cadenhead seized an opportunity. I don't know this man, but I, I kind of love him. You probably don't know him. You might do. He's a self-described internet domain hoarder. And he had the insight to purchase the domain name www.benedict16th.com before the Pope was elected. What a smart move that was. There he is sitting pretty as Pope Benedict is elected to uh, the Vatican. With that domain name, he could hold them to ransom. A similar domain name, Pope Benedict uh, the 16th.com, was sold on eBay for some $16,000. The only trouble was that he himself was a Catholic and his grandmother was a Catholic. And he said he didn't really want money. He was happy to give the domain to the Catholic Church, confessing that he didn't really want to, and I quote, anger 1.1 billion Catholics and my grandmother. <laughs> he didn't want money, but he did want something. And he said to the Vatican, I will give you free of charge this domain name that you really need for three things. Firstly, one of those hats. How cool is that? One of those hats. A free stay in a Vatican hotel. And number three, complete absolution, no questions asked, for the third week of March 1987. <laughs> what on earth was he doing the third week of March 1987? Makes you wonder. But do you have a week like that? A folly-filled summer, a month off track, a few days gone wild, a stupid mistake, a March 1987. A moment in your life that if the boxes uh, of tapes that document your life were there, you would go straight to that tape and grab it back. Are there things for which guilt still poisons your soul? So like us, when sin remains hidden, unconfessed, undealt with, David was restless, even wretched. But what would change? Just when it seemed like the angels had dropped this story into the fire, boys will be boys, and God had turned a blind eye, we read 2 Samuel chapter 11, which tells this whole story, verse 27. At the very end of a chapter that had talked about this monumental collapse on David's part, that hadn't mentioned God at all, God gets the final word. Here it comes. After the time of mourning, uh, sorry, David brought, and she, she became wife, 
Oh, I don't know where I am. Here we go. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing, notice the despising way almost, the Holy Spirit talks about it. The thing. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Contempt from God, who had seen all along. But like us, David had become so good at the act, so good at pretending everything was okay. So when Nathan the prophet shows up to confront him, David doesn't even realize what's going on. David's been pretending all along. When he came to him, just flick over, you can see it in chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord sent to David, Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now the traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who would come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb from the poor man, prepared it, and gave it to the traveller. And David's not ignorant about what's right or wrong. Look at verses 5 and 6. We read that David burned with anger. He knew this was wrong. Everything in, in, in him cried out against the injustice, the unfairness of it. That man, says David, deserves to die. Oh, David, so used to pretending, so good with your secret, so committed to your lie, you never saw it coming. With three, four-letter words, the judgment fell. You are that man. David's face pales, his Adam apple bounces, bead of sweat forms on his forehead, slinks back into his chair, he makes no defense. The magnitude of the sin he can now see clearly descends upon him. He makes no response, nothing to say. What can he do but only listen to God as God gives his verdict? You are the man. But then the words. But then the words that would usher in forgiveness. Then the words that would defeat guilt. That would bring restoration to the soul. Words that God had longed to hear. The words of confession. Verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. Such an important sentence for anyone who wants to walk free. I have sinned against the Lord. And in the story, David had sentenced the imaginary sheep stealer to death. Do you remember? But God is more merciful. The Lord has taken away your sin, Nathan replied. You are not going to die. It took David a year, a surprise pregnancy, the death of a soldier, the persuasion of a preacher, the probing and pressing of God, until David's heart finally softened and forgiveness flowed. What will it take you? What will it take me before we're willing to say about those guilty places in our lives, I've sinned. I've sinned. He's so used to pretending, so good at it. And we're good at it too. The outside looked so bright, but as David had confessed, inside he was so dark. He looked so at peace, in control of the empire, but inside there was such turmoil. Alive on the outside, but death was reigning within. We can know the same freedom, the same forgiveness. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I don't care what you've done. 
guilt need not rule and ravage and ruin your soul. That's why Jesus died. David slept well that night, but not before writing Psalm 51, a great celebration of God's releasing and freedom and hope. If you don't know Psalm 51, read it when you get home, about God restoring joy and bringing forgiveness and his healing, creating in him a pure heart and uh, and, uh, fantastic verses of of the change that God brought to him. The new beginning that's yours and mine. And maybe Solomon, David's son, had learned something from David because Solomon years later would write a book of wisdom, little nuggets of wisdom, and he stuck this one in chapter 28. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And it doesn't matter how big your sin is. You see, Satan is very clever. Before you commit the sin, he says, go on, it's only small. It won't matter. doesn't make any difference. No one will know. Just a tiny little thing. And then as soon as you've done it, he says, crikey, you did that. That's a whopping great sin. God will never forgive you. And we've heard both voices. And they're both lies. Sin really matters. Really, really matters. And God's forgiveness is really, really real. And one of the greatest testimonies to a forgiving, to a forgiven spirit is a forgiving spirit. So necessary to survive the third and final toxin, which we're not going to think about this morning, but you'll think about it in your small groups. And we'll come back to it later in this psalm. This one's so important that, that Psalm 23 comes back to it a bit later on. So important that at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus came back to it again to make sure the people understood Job, who knew so much about these things, he said, to worry yourself to death with resentment, with grudges, would be a foolish, senseless thing to do. Why? Because grudges will only ever hurt you. You're only hurting yourself with your anger. And we'll come back to all of that a little later in our series. Let's conclude, though, with an affirmation of great truth. That whatever has downtrodden your soul, be it grief, or guilt, or grudges. There is for each the hope of God. As Peter read to us at the beginning, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Downcast is a technical shepherding term. Sheep are built in such a way that if they fall over onto their side and onto their back, they cannot get up by themselves. You don't see sheep doing roly-polies. They cannot do that. They're lying on their back with their legs up in the air. It's an incredibly vulnerable place for a sheep because the sheep is open to attack. More importantly, the gas that builds in a sheep's stomach will, over a matter of hours, especially in the Mediterranean heat, where uh, the culture in which these words were written, would suffocate the sheep to death in a matter of hours. If the sheep rolls over onto its back, it is curtains for the sheep, unless the shepherd comes along. The sheep is downcast. That's what it means. 
And if the shepherd spots the sheep downcast, he goes with, with utter urgency to the sheep and starts massaging each of the four legs in turn to get the circulation back into the sheep's legs. Then he rolls the sheep onto his side and begins to massage the sheep's stomach to try and dispel the gas and to get, his whole, uh, uh, to get the whole circulation moving again. Then he turns the sheep right over. The sheep will not be ready to stand. All the blood will have flowed the wrong way. The legs will have been numb. And he will hold the sheep in the upright position until after 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes, the sheep regains its equilibrium and the blood begins to flow back into those legs and there is strength again in the sheep. Then he lets the sheep go. That's what David understands about being downcast. He knew about grief and grudges and guilt, making his soul downcast, putting him on his back so there was nothing that he could do, but he wanted to tell the whole world about a shepherd, a shepherd that spots downcast sheep and runs to them. If only they will open their arms and let him gather them in his heart and close to his chest. Stop kicking struggling and fighting, let the shepherd come. When you're flat on your back with grief and guilt and grudges, when it's quite literally squeezing the life out of you, let the shepherd come, won't you? Won't you let him hold you and and speak tenderly to you, let him pick you up, let him hold you while you regain your balance, your equilibrium. These are big things that knock us off course in life. Let him hold you as you regain your strength. And then the delight of the shepherd as he lets you go and you kick and you run in the green pasture. That's what David meant when he said, the Lord's my shepherd, he restores my soul. 